Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Brought to you by Pariah Pickups, quality handcrafted guitar pickups in Detroit City. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. This week, my guest is radio personality, musician, and host of the Jeremy White podcast, Mr. Jeremy White. This chat was a lot of fun for me. Jeremy is a real deal music fan, loves Van Halen, loves Mutt Lang, and the conversation's my favorite kind. Loose and laid back. Check it out. Jeremy, thanks for taking the time today, man. I appreciate it. How you doing? I'm super stoked. First of all, you sound just like Bob's Burgers and Archer, <laughs> and it's totally throwing me off. So, <laughs> Are you getting hungry? Yeah. And, the, dude, have you ever watched Archer, like the TV show Archer? No, I don't even know what that is. So it's the same guy. It's the same voice guy as Bob Burgers, but he has, like, dude, his voice is almost just like yours. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, if I could pull up a clip of Archer, you would actually die because you sound just like him. Oh, man. Send that to me. Now I'm curious. Hold on one second. I'm pulling up a freaking clip of Archer right now so you can hear <laughs> okay. it because this is ridiculous. Like it's, <laughs> Archer's a, it's an animated show. Okay. On, uh, Cartoon Network and like a, I think it was on Cartoon Network, but uh, it's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. So he's like a secret agent that works for ISIS and they're always combating like terrorism and stuff. So. Hold on, here you go. What's this? Here you go. Here's here's some Archer. Archer. It's uh, it's good to have you back on mission. Yes. I mean, no, not yet. Uh, look, I, I know you've been ducking me, so I need to tell you something now before you bail. <laughs> like, is that you? Is that you? Or is that you? Come on. <laughs> I don't know, man. My voice, my voice sounds different inside my head. So, oh, I don't come know. on, Brent. You know you sound just like that. <laughs> and so, dude, you're so Archer. I'm just gonna call you Archer. All now. right, done. I like it, Archer. <laughs> Oh man! All right, where were we? We're already off the rails. I love it. We are. We, uh, I, you know, I follow you on on YouTube, social media. I think what you're doing is great. Your Jeremy White podcast. I think you're at episode twenty. You just got started in in August. You've had some great chats with some very interesting guests. You've had Gene Simmons and Ace Frehley from Kiss. You've had Steve Lukather, uh, Rob Halford, Steve Stevens. You've also had. The nicest guy in rock and roll, Duff Leppard's Phil Collin. Yeah. And, and, and fantastic interviews. You've done a really good job. They're super compelling. So you're off to a great start, man. Congrats. Thanks. I appreciate that. It's funny. So when I started this podcast, l- let me give you some backstory on the podcast. So I've been wanting to start a podcast for like two years or something where I could just basically do things that I can't do on the radio station that I'm on. Mm. So I'm on Montreal's number one music station, and it's a female targeted, you know, hot ac 80s 90s today kind of like turn up the feel good what's up new survey says brand helped you poop better that detail is coming up in five like it's like that kind of radio station okay so growing up you know loving all kinds of different styles of music and genres i really just wanted to start interviewing the people that i grew up loving Mm -hmm. but that's also not what the podcast was supposed to be like it wasn't just going to be an interview show like it just kind of turned into what it is like organically Mm mm-hmm I almost wanted it to be sort of like morning show style radio, but on a podcast and you know, I was going to have a co-host and stuff. And and then uh, we started looking at all the ideas. I have a couple of really good friends of mine that are like act as like my consultants. We just said, you know what? Let me just stick to interviews for now and see what happens. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't have any guests lined up at all. Um, oh. I met Steve Stevens last summer when Billy Idol and Brian Abs were on tour. Okay. I met backstage thanks to my friend Mitch LaFawn. 
And we followed each other on Instagram and I just DM'd him one afternoon. I was like, hey, Steve, listen, I'm starting this podcast and I really need a first guest and I would love for you to be my first guest. And he was like, sure. Yeah, let's do it, man. That's great. No hesitation at all. Just said, let's do it. And it went from there. I was going week by week trying to get another guest. The second guest was Aldo Nova, which was kind of hilarious. <laughs> he lives about 45 minutes from me. We drove over to his house and recorded in his studio. And Wow. But also with the with the pandemic and everything, I was really hesitant to start a podcast because ever since the lockdown, every Tom, Dick and Harry and his auntie have started a podcast or a live stream. And it's like the market is just so saturated now. I didn't want to just be one of those like, oh, here's another podcast kind of thing. So when I was deciding to launch this, I really did. It really is a culmination of everything I've learned in, in, in radio, you know. So I was like, OK, well, I'm going to do the videos. I'm going to make sure it looks good. I'm, you know. If you look at the radio station I work on, all of our like branding and stuff is really, really top notch. Mm -hmm. Like everything's done through an agency from the logo to like our headshots, like everything. It looks like television. So I really wanted to take that and incorporate it into the podcast. So that's why, you know, like the YouTube channel really is the focus. I just kind of have like the podcast feed de facto just to say it's a podcast. But really, it's it's an interview show that I put up on my YouTube channel, you know. You, you really use the strength of video, you know, and, and I've been doing this mm -hmm. for four years now and it's strictly audio. I, I just haven't gotten into video just because, as you know, there are a lot of complexities involved with that. And you're just adding a, a whole new layer of, right? <laughs> it's so much work. Like, you know, yeah. people think, you know, for you and I, it's like, you know, we're, we're you know, broadcasters, right? So it's like we, we know, you know, what it, it takes to create compelling content. But then when you add video into it, and if you're not a video guy, like I get messages all the time from like, you know, other podcasters like, hey, Jeremy, what do you use to uh, what what app do you use to film your podcast? Because it looks great <laughs> using StreamYard. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm actually I'm actually a professional. I don't use, you know, like StreamYard or one of those bullshit apps. <laughs> uh, you know, everything's filmed professionally and then edited down like in post-production. And you know, there's actually effort put into it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where you truly stand out. You're talking earlier about the, the crowded space that is podcasting right now. And I know it is, but the effort doesn't always seem to be there and the quality doesn't always seem to be there. You know, it, it's like the music industry almost, you know, people can record albums in their basements now, but oftentimes, you know, that the level of quality has kind of, you know, been brought down a couple rungs. So somebody tweeted last night, he's another like wannabe podcaster. And I, I like to have fun with people on Twitter and stuff. Like, I don't take myself serious whatsoever. Yeah. And I think my humor doesn't come off as humor sometimes. People think I'm actually being, like, a prick. So <laughs> somebody tweeted last night, like, podcasting has become more watered down than glam rock in the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, I Just because that. you can have a podcast does not mean that you should have a podcast. And I wrote, I'm like, pot, meat, kettle. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. But there's no response. Well, he wrote back. The guy wrote back. He's like, back at you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, he's got a sense of humor but yeah yeah with the pandemic everybody's just sitting at home even rock stars now are starting their own podcasts and live stream and they're calling up their rock star buddies and i'm like well no you're not a you're not a you're not a journalist you're not a broadcaster like i'm supposed to be doing the interviews mm -hmm. and then you know because they're now on that podcast but then everybody else thinks they can get them and you know even a lot of the guests are oversaturating themselves within the podcasting realm you know yes I can name like three different people that are just way too out there on every show. And it's not special to have them on your show anymore because they just they whore themselves out. You know, it, it's funny. I was, I was talking to somebody last week about this, that since the pandemic, I've seen bands more than I have, you know, before the pandemic because everybody's live streaming like crazy now. And it's like they're all over the place. 
and it's just hit the saturation point where it's almost gone the other way, you know, and you don't want to see them anymore, but it's like, Oh God, them again. Oh, they're so desperate. <laughs> <laughs> like that's me. I'm sitting at home and I see, you know, so-and-so on Twitter. I'm like, Oh, they went on that podcast. Really? Yeah. What a last here we are two podcasters talking shit about other podcasters. Yeah, talking shit, slinging mud. Yeah. Sounds so, like we're backstage at a show. <laughs> so we're peas in, in the same pod, Jeremy. We were introduced by a mutual friend, Ian O'Malley. He knows you. I've known him for a long time. We are both massive Van Halen fans. We definitely have yeah. that in common. So on your list here, you've you've provided your five songs that make your skin vibrate. I knew there was going to be a Van Halen tune on there, but let me, as a segue into that list, let me ask you the age old question of Van Halen fans the world over. Do you know what it is? <laughs> uh, yeah. Michael or Wolfie. Oh, close. <laughs> Dave or Sam. Yeah. Sam or Dave. Well, first of all, they're two completely different bands, mm-hmm. but I gravitate towards the Sammy for the songwriting. Yeah. And gravitate towards Dave for the musicality and the impact. Mm-hmm. Showmanship. Yeah, and the showmanship. You know, you can't deny that that first record is, to me, the most influential rock record of all time. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Do you? Uh, it's it's up there. That's a huge category, man. I'm thinking, you know, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, you've got the Zeppelin. Stones. You got the Beatles. You know, you got the Stones. Yeah. You got the Hendrix stuff like that. But it's like he created an entire decade of new music. Yes. On top of that, he completely changed the way guitars were approached or even thought about and even manufactured. No question. There's nobody more impactful than Edward Van Halen when it comes to guitar. Okay, you'll you'll talk about the Jimmy Page and Hendrix and you know all those guys. Mm-hmm. But Ed literally changed guitars. Yes. I don't know what most people's kind of way of evaluating something like that would be, but for me it's like the dude just changed everything. Yeah, no, he t- he totally did. And on a I I think and this is a kind of hotly debated topic, I think on a larger level than did Jimi Hendrix. A lot of people will say, "No, no, be careful." But I think Edward Van Halen's impact when he came onto the scene was much more significant than Hendrix's impact. There was just this big discussion on Twitter like last night. There's this guy in like some prog band that said, you know, he wasn't a Van Halen fan because he didn't love the shredder guitar scene. Mm. Edward Van Halen wasn't a shred guitar player. I agree. I agree. Okay, listen, there's a lot of stuff that he did play that was shred, but you listen to the funk stuff from mean streets and the guitar solo on that which is far from shred yeah or dirty movies yeah and, you know there's so much more depth to edward van halen than just like this you know cliche oh he's the king of shred i think he was just the king of musicianship because he was just an all-around incredible musician agree when i think about shred i think about guys like warren d martini george lynch and van yeah. Holmstein. it's like just a million notes a minute guys right yeah i call them wanker guitar players because they're <laughs> Whacking off, seeing how many notes they can hit with like no sense of melody or, you know. Or That's right. I, I can't stand stuff like that. I love melodic hard rock because it actually has melody to it. And when it does come to the shredders, they actually do have some musicality to it. You know, great guitar player Steve Brown from Trickster. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite guitar players. So melodic. But man, he can, man, his fingers are going 100 miles a minute, but he's still got melody. 
Yeah, it's unbelievable what some of those guys can do. But getting back to your point about Van Halen, I think that he he plays that quickly, but just it was not for that purpose. You know what I mean? He was just getting into it. You listen to a a solo like say from like Hot for Teacher, for example, he's got a yeah. very kind of rhythmic swing aspect to his solos, like ba 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 ba. You know, well, like you know what I relate that to? I relate that to him being a classically trained pianist mm-hmm. because those could easily be translated onto a piano keyboard. And he's often said in interviews that I write all of my stuff on keyboard and then go to the guitar. So, yeah, well, see, there you go. I, one of the funniest things I read about Engbe Malmsteen when he was all the rage was that someone said it's like classical piano lines played through a fuzz box. Mm. <laughs> but um, yeah. you know what I mean? Engbe Malmsteen, bless the guy, but five minutes, I've, I've had enough. Yeah. Do you know Engbe Malmsteen almost killed me? What? Yeah, I almost got murdered by Ingve Malmsteen. I was at it? I was at his concert about uh, over ten years ago now. I was at Club Soda in Montreal. Okay. And he's on stage. He's got his wall of Marshalls, and you know he's playing his Ferrari Strad. And yeah. Now he's throwing guitar picks left and right into the freaking crowd. Okay. Okay. He throws a guitar pick up and he kicks it with his boot. Oh. It flew right into my throat. No way. I'm not kidding you. Like, shoots, he scores. It went right <laughs> to the back of my throat. I'm choking. I'm, like, literally choking. At the, and like, I'm like, I didn't even notice. I'm like, what the fuck is it? What is this? Yeah. And I finally I finally cough it up, and it's in my hand. And it was an Ingve Malmsteen guitar pick. What a bizarre story. What the fuck? Did, did, he, did he see that? Did he know he did no, it? No, he didn't see it. But the true story, my buddy Bruce was with me. <laughs> and I spit it up, and he looked He looked at my hand and looked at me. He's like, dude. <laughs> It's like one of those like Wayne's World moments. Seriously, <laughs> yeah. So Ingve Malmsteen almost murdered me. That is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, talking about Sam and Dave with Sammy, you know, I listed "Top of the World" as a song on there because mm-hmm. I, I, it's just the perfect pop rock song. You know, you you listen to that guitar riff that you know originates back to Jump and the production of the song. Sammy's melody and vocal performance and just everything about it. It sounds like a band playing a badass song. Yeah. And Ed playing one of his best less is more guitar solos ever, which going back to him not being a shred guitar player. And just it's a motivational feel good song. You know, you hear that in the standing on top of the world. Like it's just it's fun to sing and belt out and it's just a feel good rock song and you know, the whole point of the podcast, you know, your podcast, your songs that make you, you know, vibrate. That's right. That's exactly what that song does. As you, as you were singing that, like I, after Diver, not Diver Down, after 1984, I was kind of done with Van Halen. You know, I knew who Sammy Hagar was, obviously, if, you know, the Red Rocker, all that stuff, Montrose. But for me, it was kind of like an older guy joined Van Halen. Like I was 15 when 1984 came out and I thought, ah, you know, I kind of like Roth and I, you know, followed him for a little while till that got too silly. But when I was a kid, Women and Children First was like the first real rock record I heard. I was a huge Kiss fan, but Kiss, Mm. you know, the the music was always kind of like a little bit formulaic, right? But I remember hearing Women and Children First and thinking, Jesus Christ, like I was 11 years old and I thought, holy shit, like this is crazy. And it was so exciting and all that stuff. So when, for me, when Sam came into the band, I was like, eh, I don't know. But to your point, a lot of those feel-good songs came later. Top of the World, Dreams, right? Mm-hmm. Under, in the Sammy era. And and good on Van Halen for letting all that stuff out. Because maybe, you know, that was not a Dave Lee Roth thing. 
Well, you know, you go from uh, a lyric, some friends of mine just the other night went to hear this cool cat flow. And it's like, you know, you go to how do I know when it's love? Yes, exactly. It's two completely different perspectives on songwriting. And you know, there's a certain maturity that came along with the Sammy lyrics that really complemented the advanced musicality that Edward was exploring at the time. And I just think it was the perfect collaboration because those songs are just so good. Mm-hmm. Even Cabo Wabo, as, as fromage as it may be, like it's still fun. And, you know, the lyrics are cool and the, the, the melodies of the guitar playing. And it's just good music, man. Yeah, no, you're right down because you know you said you were 11 when that album came out yes so when you're 11 years old and you hear a song like intruder how do you react to that with wonderment you know like it's a jaw dropper just thinking like jesus it was i remember thinking that this was like this kind of monolithic massive thing on the other side of the speaker you know kind of pulling me in going come on you know there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on in here and it was it was fascinating to me that's what it was i was just fascinated by that Hmm. Yeah, it was incredible. I, I still remember the the sensation of it, you know, and that's yeah. why it just that stuff is so important to me, you know. Well, that's exactly what happened with me when I first saw Van Halen. I think it was like four or five years old. I was in my uncle Terrence's basement bedroom at my grandma Debbie's house, mm-hmm. and he was playing the uh, Van Halen um, Greatest Hits Volume One or whatever it's called. It came in like '96 or something oh, like right, that. Yeah, they yeah. put out like the, uh, the the VHS with like all the music videos. So we were watching the jump video mm-hmm. and i remember sitting there you know like the the fuzziness like at the beginning of the video like the yellow lines and stuff like scrolling up and down the screen yeah. and then like does the splits and i remember watching this and i thought you know eddie looked so cool you know with his jacket and he's playing the striped guitar and oh yeah and he just looks so happy and i was like this is like the coolest guy ever mm-hmm. and that really where my uh, my love for music began was uh, seeing that jump music video i think that thing was done for like 800 bucks or something too it was crazy yeah and dave directed it oh <laughs> did he really <laughs> yeah funny. he directed all all those music videos <laughs> that's hilarious it was so kind of uh slapdash it was great for van halen for me you know i'd seen the yeah. previous videos up to that point like i don't know i just i, I loved it and eddie looked so happy in that video what yeah, think? happy playing his music. You know? Yeah, it would have been weird if you know Van Halen did a thriller style video. I mean, it just wouldn't have made. <laughs> well, Pretty Woman. Remember Pretty Woman, the video for that. Yeah, even that's kind of goofy, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it was, it was hilarious. Like you kind of, you know, that gave you a very good idea of where everybody stood in the band at that point. You know, Napoleon, David Lee Roth. It was confusing, but it was hilarious. Yeah, and Alex Van Halen, like a primitive. Uh... <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. then you see what Dave did later on with his solo videos, you know, like California Girls and stuff. And, you know, he just wanted to be a movie star. He, he oh, just yeah. wanted to be so bad. Yeah. Well, the Yankee Rose, he definitely did. Give me a bottle of anything. <laughs> to go. To go. <laughs> oh, man. Van Halen, man. Oh, I could talk about Van Halen for hours and hours and hours. Now, you've got four other songs here, however. Yeah. Your next one is uh, Shania Twain. She's not just a pretty face. Yeah, that is a super out there deep cut of a Shania Twain album called Up. There's actually a live performance of that song on her Up Live in Chicago DVD. Mm-hmm. Talking about Shania, so Mutt Lang is my favorite producer of all time. And if you've watched any of my videos, my inter- interviews or anything, I always somehow get Mutt name dropped of some sorts. 
because I, I'm constantly waving the Mutt Lang flag. You know, more people need to know. I'm sure he would love it if less people knew about him, but I want everybody to know about him. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that song to me, first of all, it tells a great story. It's all about women empowerment and showing appreciation and love for all the women in, in the world. Mm-hmm. But it's also the song. I think it's the most perfectly produced song of all time. Mm. Now, have you have you listened to the song? Have you, have you ever heard it? No, you know, I, I know the record, but like you said, this is a deep cut. I've not heard the song before. Dude, I'm telling you, it's the best produced song of all time. From mm. songwriting to the production and the arrangement of the song, mm-hmm. it's the most pleasurable sounding mix you've ever heard in your life. Mm. The guitar parts are so damn good. I also think that it was one of those songs where producers in Nashville heard it and were listening and said, right, we need to up our production game. Mm. Because up at that point, you know, Mutt and Shania had put out Come On Over and The Woman and Me together. And each one of those records, they changed the sonic landscape of what country music was. You know, with The Woman and Me... You know, you had a big song like Any Man of Mine with the Queen, you know, We Will Rock You, drum beat to it and everything. And it was a big sounding rock record, but it was country. That's right. I just, I remember back then, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, how much of a force Shania was. She popified country, really, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, they did it with The Woman and Me. And then Mutt and Shania, because I I asked Shania about this. I interviewed her once and she Hmm. said she's, we did what we did on The Woman and Me. So this way we could get the okay from Nashville. And uh-huh. then if we had success with that album, then we would be able to we'd be free to do whatever we want because Mutt actually financed a portion of that album. Hmm. Record label Mercury wasn't fully like they really weren't like all that on board, especially, you know, this is Nashville. You know, you don't write your songs. You, you go to the publishing house and you record other people's songs. What? You write your own? No, only Willie and Johnny can do that. <laughs> You're a woman? No, no way. No. So. The fact that she went to the head of Mercury and she was like, well, listen, I've actually been, you know, writing some songs with this guy named Mott Lang. And I think his name was Luke Lewis, the head of uh, Mercury Nashville at the time. And he, his reaction was, well, that's cool. Mm. So so he was on board with it, but everybody else wasn't. So Mott actually had to invest a lot of his money to record that album with her because he, he believed in her. He believed in it. And... He was right to do it because, wow, it literally changed country music. No kidding. I had no idea. Yeah. So after that album was a huge success, well, then that gave them the okay. And they were like, see, look, let's take a chance on this. And then, you know, Mutt was like, you know, why can't we make the country version of Thriller? You know, that's what he did with Hysteria and Def Leppard. Let's make the rock version of Thriller. Well, then he did it with Shania on Come On Over. They did the country version of Thriller. Yeah. I think is still to this day the greatest selling album from a female artist of all time. Is it really? I, I don't doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. Mutt is the only producer within the top 20 biggest uh, selling albums to have like three or four albums within the, I think it's the 10 or 20. He holds three. Back in Black, mm-hmm. Def Leppard's area, and Shania Twain's Come On Over. They're three of the biggest selling albums of all time. Yeah. Wow. But with uh, with Come On Over, like I was saying, you know, he they just completely changed it again. Even the sonic, the, the sound of the records that came after that, you know, you listen to Faith Hill. And actually, the guitar player on Shania Twain's Come On Over, his name is Dan Huff, mm-hmm. who used to be a session guitar player. He played, you know, the Michael Jackson stuff, Whitney Houston stuff. He was in a band called Giant. Yeah. He was the session, one of the session players on that album. And Mott said to him, you know, hey, you know, you you really should look at getting into producing because, you know, you approach your guitar parts very much like a producer. And he went on to produce, geez, like Lone Star. 
he wanted to produce, you know, Faith Hill. So all those ba- and all those albums that came after Shania's Come On Over, they sounded very similar because everybody was trying to sound like Shania. Not bad for a girl from Timmins. Not bad. And then they changed it all over again with up. Oh, sorry, I know I'm rambling on about Shania, but you know, this, this is stuff people need to know. They need to know the impact that Shania and Mutt Lang had on the music scene because they did it again on up where it's a super robotic computer album. Mm-hmm. But that also made Nashville realize, OK, you know what? Maybe we don't necessarily need like a live drummer and, you know, we could start doing things more in the box. And if you listen to Shania's Come On Over, Mutt's engineer, like they they programmed the drums on that album just like they did on Hysteria. And the cool thing about it is that they use like real sounding drum samples, like they're all original sounds. Hmm. Listen to it and it sounds like an actual performance of a drummer and the quality. Everything just sounds so pleasurable to the drums and they sound huge and they sound fat. Country producers heard that and labels were like, shit, we really need to up the ante here. And ever since then, every country album since has sounded like Shania's Up album. I think Shania should be paying you a royalty. Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get her back on. I need to get her on my podcast for a proper interview because you know. If she hears this, she's going to be calling you. Well, let me let me make one quick point before we move on. Talking about Mott and Shania and how country music sounds just like the records. If you go listen to the new Lady Antebellum, so sorry, Lady A. They changed her name. The last one's right, racing. Yeah. So you listen to their song Champagne Night, mm-hmm. and it's the best Def Leppard song on country radio, right? <laughs> Literally, the pour some sugar on me rhythm and chords. With a different melody. Oh. Dude, it, it's Def Leppard. I don't know what to think of that, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's kind of sad. but. Well, it is what it is, right? I don't know where that line is, but oh well. You know, <laughs> we were fortunate that we were young when, you know, Def Leppard, it's a good segue into your next tune, Def Leppard, Armageddon, uh, when this stuff was going on. Like, this was our music. This was my music. Hysteria, I listened to, you know, every day. Loved it. Great pick here. I just love that song because of how fun it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, you know, it's it's bang a gong. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and Joe's, you know, vocal performance on the song is just so good. He's not singing, but he's not talking. It's kind of like a really cool combo. And he's kind of like really in the mic. And you better come inside when right. you get like, you know, chance. Like, it's really it's a cool vocal performance. Yeah. Like, I almost feel like that chorus wasn't a part of that song. Like, it was something else. And then Mutt was like. Right, we should take the chorus from that and put it onto this. And once again, it's the perfect song, you know? That could be, eh? I, I was just kind of thinking that, listening to this song in my head, and I, you might be right. Yeah. That might be a, a little uh, cut and paster. It's one of those great songs where it has the key change in the chorus. Yes. I love you know? that modulation. Yes. So in that song, I love it there. And there's two more songs that I love that have the key change. Brian Adams' One Night Love Affair. Mm-hmm. And Everybody's Working for the Weekend, Lover Boy. They all go up to that D. Ah, wow. There's so many of those great songs that have that modulation just at the right precise time. That's perfect. That's a great producer, you know, that, that can see that, you know, hey, we should do that. Yes, absolutely. That's just great songwriting. You're right. Speaking of Phil Collin, well, Def Leppard, Phil Collin has been on this show, thankfully. He's like a just a, a super nice guy, nicest guy in rock and roll. And uh, he t- he told me that Mutt was the guy who actually taught him to play properly in time with a band, like taught him to to be a musician, not just a you know a flashy fleet fingered guitar player, you know, just like a, a shredder. Wanka. Yeah, a wanka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Mutt said, like, okay, so play along with the drums. Here's the two. Here's the four. So, and he would slow down to kind of 
add a little bit more, you know, rhythmic sensibility to his playing. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. So I interviewed Randall Waller, who mm. was Shania Twain's touring guitar player for the big two tours, uh, Come On Over and Up. And he was saying that when he first got into the band, there's a song called Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Everybody knows it, right? Mm-hmm. So the rhythm guitar part goes, Now, as a guitar player, normally, you know, you'd go with your first and second fingers mm-hmm. plucking strings, and then you'd use your thumb to hit that G note. Okay. Mutt said to me, oh, Randall, listen, um, you know, when you when you use your thumb, the, the, the tip of the thumb isn't as strong as the tip of your first finger. And if you don't use the first finger to pull the note, it's going to be a little bit five heavy. Wow. You want it to be you know, really powerful. You want to feel and hear that G. So can you can you just pluck it? So Randall literally had to use his two fingers and then jump over to the E to hit the G with his first finger and then go back to the chord. Wow. Mutt has these such bionic ears. He was telling me the story. It's on my podcast. The, the video is on my YouTube channel. He was saying that he was just like tired. Like they, they would go like 12 hour days rehearsing for like three months straight the mm. entire set. And he's like, one day I was just tired. Like I was exhausted. And Mutt sitting there, you know, he's got his monitors. His eyes are closed. He's listening or he's reading his book. And he's like, I just got tired. And I, I happened to, you know, go back to my thumb. And he's like, I'm sitting, I'm standing there playing. Mutt's in there. All of a sudden, Mutt like sits up in his chair like some, <laughs> like something happened. And he's like, he's looking around. He's looking around at the band. And he's like, mind you, this is the full band playing like in the studio, loud as shit. And Mutt looks over to me and he points at me. And I realized I was using my thumb again. And he's like, oh, I jumped jumped back to my fingers. And he gave me the thumbs up and kind of smiled and went back to his book. Wow. Nothing escapes the man. He's just so detail-oriented. He could hear the difference between your first finger and your thumb. That's crazy. And that's just mind-blowing to me, you know? Phil saying that, you know, he really taught him how to play guitar. Phil and I were talking about that, how they were really playing everything to to a click, you know, playing everything had to be perfectly in time, mm-hmm. especially with like the production stuff at that point. You know, a lot of bands are doing dance remixes and stuff. I actually uh, I talked to Steve Stevens about that. He was saying that, you know, they kind of took the, the Def Leppard Lang approach to their songs because they wanted to be able to, you know, take the tape and, you know, make dance remixes and stuff and everything. If If nothing was recorded to a click or on the grid. You know, it wouldn't have been possible because your guitar part would have been cut halfway through like the last note or something. And so there there really is a method to the madness. Yeah. This has turned into the Mutt Lang Shania Twain podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your next tune, Kiss Unholy, does Mutt Lang have anything to do with that? I know Shania Uh, doesn't. No, none at all. (laughs) All None whatsoever. (laughs) I threw that Kiss song in because we need a little bit of Kiss on that list. You know, one of my favorite bands of all time. So, yeah, that song comes off the Revenge album. And um, I just thought it was a great song because it was a bit of departure for the band after the whole glam of the late 80s. You know, they were doing you know, the power ballads like Forever and uh, Tears Are Falling and mm-hmm. into the 90s where, you know, grunge was starting to happen. Music was starting to get a little heavier. It was it was kind of like the beginning of toxic masculinity again, mm-hmm. where every, every guy had to be you know with their beard and their flannel like yeah, i'm a fucking man i ain't no fucking pussy wearing spandex and makeup you know which I, that was one of the other terrible things about the 90s it, it was the birth of toxic masculinity you know that song i i think it's great because it really is representative of the time because it's gene singing in this really cool growly voice and it's a really heavy riff and the drums are just like a locomotive and big sing-along chorus it's just the perfect rock song yeah. Funny, when I saw this pick, I thought, wow, Kiss songs like Unholy 
is a unique pick, but you know, I, I think about revenge in the same way that I think about creatures of the night in that it was almost like a pendulum swing back the other way after an album like the elder and then hot in the shade, I think yeah. was the album before this one. So it's almost mm-hmm. like, you know, they sat down and said, Hey man, we, we gotta, we gotta turn it around a little bit. And they went way back the other way. You know, kiss, they were, they were doing really bad business at the time. You know, mm-hmm. Gene, like so like MIA just trying to be a Hollywood movie star you know they were playing to half of the arenas Paul Stanley talks about it in his book he's like you know we really didn't think that we were going to make it past yeah. you know the hot in the shade tour yeah and when they got Bob Ezrin back on board to produce and they did a 360 man <laughs> that had to be challenging and I've had this conversation before about 70s bands trying to stay relevant in the 80s and that had to be tough think about all those bands Jeremy right from Alice Cooper to Fleetwood Mac to Heart, Cheap Trick. There's so many of them, right? And they must have been terrified. Yeah. Well, you know, even Aerosmith, you know, they were gone. Yeah. And then Pump comes around and, you know, the permanent vacation. It was it was almost like as if they were a fresh new band. Yeah. They were a completely new band. They were completely different in my mind. And even Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper band sounds completely different from Trash. Well, yeah, those days were completely different. I felt like, you know, when the 80s came, he went through that little bit of a, a weird period with um, Zipper Catches Skin and Flush the Fashion and that sort of thing. I think he was going through some some issues. In the 80s, he tried to get some traction with what was coming out, that that Friday the 13th tune, Constrictor. And then he, he What finally, was that song called? He's the man behind the mask. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I just thought, oh, this is not you, Alice. This is not you at all. Please, dude, come on. And it then has he, that and weird the, intro. It's like, shh, 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 ha, ha, ha. Oh, I know. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. But then Poison came out. You know, I think Slash played on, on some of that record. And uh, he, he found his groove finally. It took him a little while. But like the 80s obviously had a huge impact on him. Not necessarily a good one. You listen to a song like Feed My Frankenstein, and that's still a staple in the Alice Cooper live set. And it's a damn great song. So mm-hmm. I think just at the end of the day, a great song is a great song, right? And on Feed My Frankenstein, I don't know if it was Steve Vai or Joe Satriani. One of them played guitar on that. And mm. I think Nikki Six is credited as a co-writer. Really? Yeah. So listen to that bass line. Don't, 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 don't. It almost sounds like it almost has like a Dr. Feelgood kind of vibe to it. Yeah. That was uh, Wayne's World soundtrack, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I like that tune. All right, you've got one more here, sir. It's Brian Adams and another deep cut. Don't drop that bomb on me. I think this is 91, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, the album Waking Up the Neighbors. Mm-hmm. That's another Mutt Lang song. Oh. Yeah, that was another, uh, that was produced by Mutt Lang, that album. I say that song, Don't Drop That Bomb on Me by Brian Adams, is the best song Def Leppard never recorded. <laughs> Because the chorus is so Def Leppard. Don't drop that bomb on me. Like it's super Def Leppard. Even like the same drum sounds as Hysteria. Yeah. It's the same guitar sounds. It's it's Def Leppard. You know, the only difference is that Joe Elliott wasn't singing. <laughs> That's so funny. That's the Mutt Lang brand at that point, I guess. Which is kind of funny because you think about Back in Black and how much of a, a spare record that was in terms of, you know, there wasn't a lot going on. There was a lot of space, which I love about the record. And then you've got yeah. all this crazy multi-tracking on albums like Hysteria. And I, yeah. I, I'm not super familiar with this Adam's tune, but it sounds like it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's the last song on Waking Up the Neighbors. And if you go listen to it after we're done here, like you, you're going to text me right away and be like, <laughs> Def Leppard throw away, 1,000%. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check it out.
Internalize came out at the same time as like that album. And it's like, you know, you hear that, that song and then you go listen to, um, you know, make love like a man or, or something like it's the same tone. It's the same sound of the albums, you know? Yeah, I could see that, actually. So do you you can see the correlation though between all the songs I listed. They're all really well produced songs. Mm-hmm. Like you put that on and it sounds pleasurable to the ear, you know. It's not like screaming vocals and just the production of it, the mixes. You know, the drums and the bass are just so perfectly, you know, leveled with each other and the guitars and everything. Like I I'm just a fan of big production and not to say I don't appreciate, you know, like Back in Black because I do. It's one of my favorite albums of all time, but I'm just a fan of what they did with the technology, you know? Mm-hmm. You listen to that, and it just sounds so big, and it's almost mind-boggling how they were able to do that in, in the tape days, you know? So it's, yeah. it's, the production is almost as inspiring to me as the album and the music itself, you know? Well, you know, I, I love what you've done here with this because it's very insightful, and I feel like people sometimes don't get that granular when they think about music and listen to music, and I love when people dig in the way that you were doing, and it compels you to listen a little bit more closely. Yeah, because I'm on Top 40 radio, right? And mm-hmm. I'm exposed to the biggest pop songs in the world on a daily basis. You know, mm-hmm. I was almost going to throw a couple, like a Katy Perry or a, or a Maroon 5 or a Lady Gaga on the list for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, talking about, you know, the interviews and stuff I do on the podcast, it's not like I'm just so used to doing. So what are you watching on Netflix right now? Or oh, did you bake bread <laughs> while stuck in isolation? You know, what's it like sitting at home? Like, you know, like all those like stereotypical bullshit pop culture, pop radio questions that, you know, these artists get asked. From every single interviewer in every city that they do an interview with. Yeah. You know, I was interviewing David Guetta, okay? Like, he's one of the biggest DJ. You know, I'm sure you know who David Guetta is, right? Mm-hmm. I did an interview with him for the radio station. I asked him a question, and my program director got pissed at me. Hmm. Because his whole rationale is that, oh, you know, our audience doesn't care about that stuff. You know, they don't, they, you know, they just want to know, you know, oh, what's it like, you know, working with Sia on the song or, you know, oh, what are you watching? And, you know, stuff that's relatable to them to humanize them with their audience. And I'm like, well, first of all, you know, so and so woman 40 years old that listens to the radio station isn't going out of her way to go on YouTube and watch an interview with David Guetta. First, that, that's my first point. Right. <laughs> Second of all, she didn't give two shits if David Guetta's baked bread will in isolation or. <laughs> If you're, if you're watching a David Guetta interview, you're probably A, already a David Guetta fan, and B, a fan of his music, and C, you're probably a DJ or a producer, and you want to learn from the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I asked, I asked him a question, but I, I composed my question in a way that allowed him to get his you know prepared you know one-sheet answer for the song. But I, I straight up asked him, I was like, you know, David Guetta, you're one of the biggest DJs and producers in the world, and you're working with Sia on this song. Talk to me about how you approach producing a song for the radio. You know, talking about the sonic landscape. You know, you, obviously the song starts on the piano with Sia and then she brings it to you to produce. But how do you decide, okay, I'm going to use, you know, uh, an Oberheim keyboard on this or I'm going to use a Lindrum. You know, how do you decide how you're going to produce this song? And the first thing he said, he's like, well, first of all, I'm very impressed that you know what an Oberheim is because I think you're the first interviewer that's ever known what that is. <laughs> That's great. And then, yeah. And so he was very complimentary. And then he went on and did the sales pitches. Like, you know, I just I see what the song needs, you know, if it needs this or it needs that. And and he was still able to give me his, um, you know, his prepared answer. But, you know, we got a little bit more in depth with it, which is great. But it was also interesting to him because it wasn't something that he's necessarily asked all the time. And that's exciting, you know. 
if you're asked the same question every every interview you do, it, it gets boring. So I, I like to bring a little bit more to the table, you know? See, to me, you've added a, a cerebral context, right? Clearly, he was impressed by that. And clearly, he was happy that you did. And I think that stuff like that is important because those same old cookie-cutter questions are just so dull. And it's, you know what, yeah. though, Jeremy, you know, it's like classic rock radio, right? It's like mm-hmm. Let's Upland Rock and Roll and Black Dog and Stairway to Heaven instead of you know, out on the tiles and black country woman. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you're just feeding people what you think they want to hear without really knowing. And I mean, I think on the other side, people are kind of eating it up too. And I don't know why that is, but what about mm-hmm. something a little different, you know? Well, you know, it's funny. Like at the radio station, you know, every single song we play on the air is tested, goes through a focus group, you know, this and that, you know, everything has to be proven. Like it's mm-hmm. going to be a winning hit on the radio. You know, we've come to see that, you know, the audience doesn't really, A, know who's singing it or really care who's singing it. Mm-hmm. As long as they can vibe to it and it makes them feel good while they're sitting in their cubicle or driving to wherever they need to go, that's all that matters to them. You know, if it happens to be Shawn Mendes, great. If it happens to be ACDC, awesome. A good song is just a good song exactly. at the end of the day. Yeah. And, you know, I just hate when people overanalyze it. You're a modern day Johnny Fever. I knew that guys like you were still out there. <laughs> we're still around <laughs> you give me faith jeremy white oh, i'm trying i'm trying listen man this this was a lot of fun for me i really appreciate you taking the time this is a fun laid-back cool chat i really enjoyed it yeah do i sound like somebody you want to grab a beer with <laughs> oh we're definitely grabbing a beer we're doing that for sure when this is all over i'm coming to montreal we're gonna listen to tunes and we're gonna grab beers yeah we'll get ian to come on drive on up too and uh oh yeah we'll get him up here Well, listen, man, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll have to come back on when I put my album out this summer. I was going to say, I want you to come back on five more tunes, and we'll talk about your new record when it comes out. Yep, I'm all in. All right. Thank you very much, and continued success with the podcast. Really great job, man. Well, I appreciate it, man. And, uh, you know, go subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's where all the videos are. But the cool thing about the YouTube is that it's not just like the interviews. Like, I'm I'm putting like covers and... I, you know, talk about my guitar gear and stuff like that. So it's not just the podcast, which is, which is the cool thing about the YouTube channel. So, yeah. All right, Jeremy White, thank you very much. I will be in touch. I'll send you a text, man. All right. Appreciate it, Brent. This was great. All Good right. interview. Good interview. Thank you. Thank you for this. This is a fantastic chat. Appreciate thank you, sir. It. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon, brother. Thanks, man. All right. We'll talk later. Peace. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sunbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Jeremy White. Until next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.